First Peter chapter one, verses 13 through 16 will be our passage um, for our teaching today. Um, But for our reading, I would like to read beginning in verse 8 through verse 16. So 1 Peter, verse 8 through verse 16. Where the apostle Peter, the leader of the disciples, is writing to these believers who are uh, elect exiles of the dispersion uh, through the region of Turkey, or what would be modern-day Turkey. And he says this in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, that is, Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with an inexp- with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So as we're continuing our series here in first Peter, we're hearing the we've just heard from uh, from God, the words through Peter to these Christians who experience difficulties and trials and sufferings, sufferings and trials and grieve, grieves, grieved by various trials because of what they experienced uh, as believers. These are. Um, these would include our run-of-the-mill everyday things like illnesses or sadnesses or, or heartache or difficulties in life. But these in particular are grievances that they're experiencing uh, because they are hated for Christ. And as we've seen thus far, he wants to begin by reminding them of the blessings that they have, that they've been born again into a living hope. How do you experience, how do you how do you? Uh, survive through suffering while well, you remember all the blessings and the uh the glories that are prepared for you some of which we have received we've already read here in verses 8 through through 10 and that this these difficulties that we are experiencing in the christian life are to be plan- to be expected we should expect these things because as we just saw if the messiah 
if the Messiah himself had to suffer first and then have glories afterward, that forms a pattern for his followers. And so Peter is reminding them, this is all part of the difficulties of what you will experience in a Christian life. Now he gets to the beginning of what kind of launches in the rest of this letter, some exhortations to them on how they ought to live. And he launches right in with here in this passage. And so there's three parts I want us to, to focus on in these couple of verses, and verses 13 through, um, through 16. This is just the beginning of the exhortations he has for, for them. And so here uh, we'll be talking today about getting your mind ready for holiness. Getting your mind ready uh, for holiness. And isn't it just appropriate um, that when uh, I am going to have to preach on holiness this week, on, on a Sunday, that I experience the greatest challenges to my holiness throughout the week? Right? How many of you have ever like experienced this? Like, I, I pray for patience. Well, then you're going to get what you need in order to develop your patience. This week was a bit of very trying experience for me um, in, uh, in, for my own personal holiness. And um, uh, so, uh, so this is a bit of very encouraging uh, passage for me. Um, and so let's look at this challenge that he's given to these followers and got what the challenge that God has given to us for holiness here in these uh, in these couple of verses. And we're going to look at this in three steps. First one is he, he wants them to get mentally prepared for holiness. Get mentally prepared for holiness in verse 13. OK, and there's three parts to this, even in this verse. Uh, notice it begins, therefore, so this is the big trigger. Then we know that uh, in light of everything that he has just said in verses 13, all the way, or excuse me, three, all the way through 12, uh, the blessings that we've received from the father uh, that we're born again to a living hope that we have united with Christ in his resurrection, uh, that we are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time in view of everything that he has just said here. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls that God has put on reserve for you, even more greater blessings that he's kept under wraps and guarded for heaven. And he is protecting you through that in light of all of those things. He says, now you have an obligation to live a certain way in this world. Therefore, he says now, so he's getting to the practical application of the salvation that Peter had been spelling out in verses three through twelve. The first one is preparing your minds for action. Uh, now, I'm reading out of the ESV. And so um, notice the little footnote there. Does, how, show of hands. Does yours have a little, little footnote after the word action? Show of hands in your translation. Somebody have a different translation? What does it say? Yeah, what does it say? Great. That is awesome. It's that beginning part. Gird up the loins of your minds, which is what it says in my text, uh, my footnote text here. Girding up the loins of your minds. I, I like when the translators are trying to, you know, 
convey the sense or the meaning of it, but sometimes when they put when they change what the like the the original words are, you lose a little bit of some of the background stuff here. I love that picture. Girding up the loins of your minds, he says. Peter is using a very uh, uh, Hebraic kind of uh, earthy imagery here. Uh, in the ancient world, um, they would wear long, men would wear these long robes. But when they were getting ready to do some exertion, like they were going to run from one place to the next or hike from one place to the next, or they were getting ready to do some sort of strenuous activity, or they were getting ready to do warfare, they would gird up their loins. And let me give you a picture here. I, I got this from a, a website that gives a good description of what girding up your loins looks like. Okay? I know, I think I've shown this before. So what you do is you gather up all of this long rope that you would have, okay? And you would grab it all, pull it forward, then you would put it between your legs and then uh, around your waist and then tie it in a knot in front of you, thereby exposing your manly thighs, okay? So you are now able to, um, to run someplace to chase your kids or, in this case, have a sword and go into battle, okay? This is called girding up your loins. And it's, it occurs in a couple of places in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple of uh, places in where this Hebrew, Hebraic expression is used. Probably the, one of the most famous is Exodus chapter 12. You remember in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord God has given instructions for the people of Israel to celebrate this special meal called Passover because he's about ready to deliver them from their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And he goes, okay, and in the middle of this, let me give you instructions. This is what you need to eat, how you need to eat it. Because you're going to mark this event with this meal um, into perpetuity. Okay? And in the middle of those instructions, he gives this in verse 11. Exodus chapter 12, verse 11. He says, in this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened is what it says in the ESV. But in the, the, uh, the Hebrew, it's literally... With your loins girded. Like you don't sit down and eat like this. You sit down and eat like this. Why? He says. He goes with your sandals on your feet. and Your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. Because it's on that very night. I'm going to lead you out. You're going to be just finishing up this meal. And guess what? The Egyptians can take over the dishes. Because we're leaving right now. Beautiful picture there. It's, it's a picture of readiness, physical readiness, being physically ready, ready for action. So the ESV is not, it's not bad there when it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. It's conveying the sense. But I love the imagery. Here's another one. This is one of my favorites. In Job 38. Okay, remember Job was not going to complain against the Lord about all the hardship and difficulty he was experiencing. And then, you know, his good friends are saying, yeah, you should go ahead and complain a little, you know. You're, you've, I'm sure you've done something wrong or something. And then finally, like Job uh, does offer a complaint to God. And in Job 38, the Lord God responds to Job's complaint. And he says this in verses one through three. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
do you want God to show up and <laughs> God spoke to me. You have these people say like, I heard something verbally from the Lord. Has any of them said, uh, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Right. Where's the devotional on that? God spoke to me. Right. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And then he addresses Job and he says in the ESV, dress for action like a man. Ooh. In the Hebrew, it's the, God is saying, gird up your loins. Why? I will question you. And you will make it known to me. And then he goes on through all of chapter 38 and then all of chapter 39 asking him questions. Where were you when the earth was, world was founded? How, how deep are the waters? You know? What about the Leviathan, the big sea creature? What, what, you know, what are you able to do with him? The Lord goes on to two, two chapters, and then the Lord apparently pauses long enough for Job to speak. And Job says, Behold, I am of small account, and I, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. To which, what does God do? God goes, Dress for action like a man. And he goes on a whole other round of questioning again. Gird up your loins. I love that picture. I will question you and you'll make it known to me. But this is prepare, get ready. In this case, it was get ready to be inquired from the Lord questions in the midst of his complaint. Peter's using this kind of imagery, gird up your loins, this be ready, ready to move, be alert, remove the hindrances Except Peter adds something. He says, and it's a really strange construction there, like gird up the loins of your mind as if your minds have loins, right? Like he's saying this, you need to think of this um, mentally prepare yourself. Get your minds prepared to move. Get your minds prepared for action. Remove mental hindrances. Remove distractions. Be on spiritual high alert. DEFCON 5 in your spiritual thinking. And what are you to be thinking about? In the context here, he says, you're to be thinking about your coming salvation. All that the Lord will bring with him when he returns. Verse 7, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he ends at this, the end of this verse, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what are we to prepare our minds on? What are we to fix our minds on? The salvation and all of its blessings. He's just spelled them out in verses 3 through 12. And he says, therefore, gird up the loins of your minds with this, all of this, these facts. It's a refusal to let your mind wander and to focus on the things of God. And this is connected to the second one, right? So it says here, prepare your minds for action and being sober minded is the second part. This is the, the term for sobriety. Be alert, you know, don't be dulled into uh, into thinking. And he's saying it's not in like physical sobriety, although it obviously it could include that. Um, but I think he's saying in this context, he's talking about your minds. Be of sober thinking. OK, don't go. Don't fall into a mental intoxication or a spiritual intoxication. Don't get into a, a spiritual inebriation or laziness of mind which lulls christians into carelessness it says don't do those things 
Peter uses this exact same word a little bit uh, later, this uh, in chapter four, verse seven, uh, where he says, at the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober minded. He does it again in chapter five, verse eight, where he says, be sober minded. Be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to devour. Okay, So be sober-minded and alert. And then lastly, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Put all your hope and your trust in the storehouse of God's blessings, the undeserved blessings that he's given us. The one that God has put on guard for us, that God will pour out for us when he returns. So get, friends, get mentally prepared for holiness. The old saying, you know, people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. Uh, I think there's some truth in that here. If you're not prepared mentally, if the loins of your mind are not girded up for the call to holiness that we're going to see here in a moment, um, do not be surprised if you don't see it happen. So that's the first one. Get mentally prepared for holiness. And the second one is get, get past your past. Okay, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Okay? He begins with a do not here in verse 14. He gets to the do's. Uh, what you should do in verses 15 and 16 in light of all the blessings of our salvation. But here he says, this is what you should not do. You should not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Now here, the ignorance would be conveying like the ignorance of God, the ignorance of the gospel, the ignorance of this glorious salvation that he has prepared for us through the death and resurrection of Christ. And he's saying, you need to... uh, to get prepared, not only get prepared uh, minds for holiness, but you need to also put away your past. No longer be conformed to those kind of passions. Uh, passions. It's very reminiscent to what Paul says in Romans chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 2. Or excuse me, verse 2. It says, where Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Peter's saying something very similar. Gird up the loins of your minds and be sober-minded. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. That you would put to death the old past and our old selves. And the passions that come along with that. So get past your past is verse 14. And then part three, get on toward holiness in verses 15 and 16. But as, and so here's the contrast. You're not, you're as obedient children. You're not to be conformed to your passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So a couple of things to notice here. First of all, God's holiness. He who called you is holy. 
What does God's holiness mean and signify? God is set apart. He's set apart from worldliness and sin, obviously, would have no place in him. Peter grounds this here in the very holiness of God and that the holiness of God becomes the model for which we are uh, to aspire, which is the second part here. That God is holy. Second is God calls you to holiness. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy. And then he repeats this again in verse 16. It's kind of a chiasm here. You know, like he... The A-B-B-A kind of format. God who called you is holy. You be holy. Therefore, as scripture says, be holy for the Lord your God is holy. For I am holy, he says. So God is holy. God calls us to be holy. And then he gives the scriptural basis for this in verse 16. Right? Since it is written. Peter's pulling right from the Old Testament. He's pulling right from Leviticus. Remember, Leviticus Uh, follows on from that glorious deliverance of God's people out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus then was, here is how you should be as a holy people in my presence. If I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people and you're going to build me a, a dwelling place for me to dwell in your midst, this is how you ought to be. You have to live differently than the nations around you. That's what... If you could summarize Leviticus, that's a summary of of kind of what Leviticus is about. And in several places, you see this refrain refrain that Peter is using here for uh, Leviticus 11, 44. For I, the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God, you shall therefore be holy for I am holy. 19 verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. Chapter 20, verse 7. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I, the Lord, uh, for I am the Lord your God, he says. And then in verse 26 of chapter 20. You shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Okay. Now, there is a, there's a quantitative, a qualitative difference between God's holiness and our holiness. Nevertheless, he is calling us to separateness, to distinction from the other peoples around him. And what, would, what applied to Israel in the Old Testament, the Israelites, Peter regularly says, this applies to you, church. So what does our holiness mean and what does our holiness look like? For the for the remainder of our time, I I was going to do something a little bit different here. Uh, I wanted to um, read a section or read portions of sections from a book from a guy named J.C. Ryle. You may have heard me mention him before. He's written a book on holiness. How many of you have heard of J.C. Ryle before? Oh, yes. Good. All right. Um, how many of you have heard of his book, Holiness, before? It's a classic. J.C. Ryle was a, an Anglican bishop, but he was very evangelical back in the uh, 19th century. And very, uh, very great devotional literature. Um, he was the Archbishop of Liverpool, I believe. 
uh, the Bishop of Liverpool, not the Archbishop, uh, the Bishop of Liverpool. And this book on holiness is uh, fantastic. And so, as a matter of fact, I just realized as I was going through my office that I actually have an extra copy. So if there's anyone here who, would, who is interested in reading about holiness from J.C. Ryle, um, come up here today afterward, and I will give you uh, this copy. J.C. Ryle is no longer, he's with the Lord. He can't sign it for you. Um, but if you would like an unsigned copy of, uh, of holiness by J.C. Ryle, uh, if you're the second person to come up, and, and, or the third, or the fourth, and I, I don't have a copy for you, I will get you one. Just let me know. I'll write your name down, and I will get you one. It's an, uh, an, an excellent book. And so what I'm going to do is I feel like in many ways what he writes I can't be improved upon. So if I could, just bring some of the blessings of J.C. Ryle to you today. Are you cool with that? Okay. So, and I will give you some uh, slides to kind of guide us in that time. You could have uh, fill out some of the things in the handouts. Let me begin by how he begins with this little exposition. He says, I'm going to try to draw a picture of holiness that we may see it clearly before the minds of our eyes. Uh, only let, never let it be forgotten when I have said all that my account is but a poor, imperfect outline at best. Um, his poor, imperfect outline I felt couldn't be improved upon. So I'm going to read his poor, imperfect outline. Here's first one. Holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. And he says, according to how we find his mind described in the scriptures. It is the habit, the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves, and measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. So holiness is having the mind of God. And how do we have the mind of God? He would say, obviously, we would weigh it by what it says in the scriptures. He who most agree, entirely agrees with God is the most holy man, he says. And he uses holy man here in reference. We understand this applies to men and women. That's the first one. Of being of one mind with God. And how do we get one mind with God? Well, we do so by by familiarizing ourselves with his mind as revealed in scripture two or B the holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will have a decided bent of mind toward God, a hearty desire to do his will, a greater fear of displeasing him than of displeasing the world. And a love to his ways. He recites from the psalm from David. When David in Psalm um, 119 says, I esteem all your precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. So endeavor to shun every known sin and keep every known commandment. See, a holy man will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. He will not only live the life of faith in him and draw from him all his daily peace and strength, but he will also labor to have the mind that was in him and to be conformed to his image from Romans 8, 29. It will be his aim to bear with and forgive others 
even as Christ forgave us. To be unselfish, even as Christ pleased not himself. To walk in love, even as Christ loved us. To be lowly-minded and humble, even as Christ made himself of no reputation and humbled himself. He will remember that Christ was a faithful witness for the truth. That he came not to do his own will. That it was his food and drink to do the Father's will. That he would continually deny himself in order to minister to others. That he was meek and patient under uh, undeserved insults. That he thought more of godly poor men than of kings. That he was full of love and compassion to sinners. And that he was bold and uncompromising in denouncing sin. That he sought not the praise of men. We might. uh, That he sought not the praise of men. When he might have had it. That he went about doing good. That he was separate from worldly people. That he continued instant in prayer. That he would not let even his nearest relations stand in his way when God's work was to be done. These things a holy man will try to remember. By them, he will endeavor to shape the course of his life. It's a little preview of what's coming. Peter echoes this a little bit in the next chapter in verse 21, when it says, um, for... To this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. D, the holy man will follow after meekness. And here he has long suffering, gentleness, patience, kind tempers, control of his tongue. E, the holy man will follow after temperance and self-denial. He will labor to mortify the desires of his body, to crucify his flesh with his affections and lusts, and to curb his passions, to to restrain his carnal inclinations, lest at any time they break loose. Here he's echoing basically what Peter had said just prior to these verses on holiness. Do not be conformed any longer to the passions of your former ignorance. F. Follow hard. A holy man will follow after charity and this love, right? And brotherly kindness. He will endeavor to observe the golden rule of doing as he would have men do to him. And speaking as he would have had men speak to him. G, a holy man will follow after a spirit of mercy and benevolence toward others. He will not stand all the day idle. He will not be content doing no harm. He will try to do good. He will strive to be useful in his day and generation. I love that. He will strive to be useful in his day and his generation. And to lessen the spiritual wants and misery around him as far as he can. H. To follow a holy man, holy person, will follow after purity of heart. 
He will dread all filthiness and uncleanness of spirit and seek to avoid the things which might draw him into it. He knows his heart is like a tender and will diligently keep clear of the sparks of temptation. Follow after purity of heart. A holy man will follow after the fear of God. And I'm quoting him here. I do not mean the fear of a slave who only works because he is afraid of punishment and would be idle if he did not uh, dread discovery. I mean, rather, the fear of a child who wishes to live and move as if he were always before his father's face because he loves him. What a noble example Nehemiah gives us of this. When he became governor at Jerusalem, he might have been chargeable to the Jews and required of them money for his support. The former governors had done so. There was none to blame him if he did. But he says, so did not I because of the fear of God. J, follow after humility. He will desire in lowliness of mind to esteem all others better than himself. He will see more evils in his own heart than any other in the world. He will understand something of Abraham's feeling when he says, I am dust and ashes. And Jacob's feeling when he says, I am less than the least of all thy mercies. And Job's when he says, I am vile. And Paul's when he says, I am the chief of sinners. The holy man will follow after humility. The holy man will follow after faithfulness in all the duties and relations in life. He will try not merely to fill his place as well as others who take no thought for their souls, but even better because he has higher motives and more help than they. Those words of Paul should never be forgotten. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So holy persons should aim at doing everything well and should be ashamed of allowing themselves to do anything ill if they can help it. They should strive to be good husbands and good wives good parents and good children, good masters and good servants, good neighbors and good friends, good uh, in private and good in public, good in the place of business and good by their firesides. Holiness is worth little indeed if it does not bear this kind of fruit. The Lord put a searching question to his people when he says, what do you do more than others? In Matthew chapter 5. And lastly, but not least, a, a holy man or holy person will follow after spiritual mindedness. Again, echoing a little what Peter says to us here. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above and to hold the things on earth with a very loose hand. Let me say that. He will endeavor to set his affections entirely on things above. And to hold things on earth 
with a very loose hand. He will not neglect the business of his life that now is, but the first place in his mind and thoughts will be given to the life that is to come. He will aim to live like the one whose treasure is in heaven and to pass through this world like a stranger and pilgrim traveling to his home. Elect exiles. To to commune with God in prayer, in the Bible, and in the assembly of his people. These things will be the holy man's chiefest enjoyments. He will value everything, place, and company just in proportion as it draws him nearer to God. And he will enter into something of David's feeling when he says, My soul follows hard after thee. Thou art my portion. Brothers and sisters, let's heed these words of Brother J.C. Ryle on our holiness, the things that we can do to pursue holiness. But more importantly, let's heed the words of Peter, the chief of the apostles, the leader of those disciples, the one who was closest to the Lord as he writes to believers. More so, let's let's heed the words of the God who inspired these words. May we gird up the loins of our minds, being sober in mind, to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he comes back. As obedient children, let's no no longer be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as he, as God who is holy, called us to be holy. So we should be holy in all of our conduct. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Amen. Let's let's stand for a closing prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we we do thank you for your word that you've given to us. We thank you for Peter's words here to this church that are Peter's words to us and your words to us. And God, we thank you for this call, this reminder that you call us to be a holy people. God, we'd ask that we would have your holiness in our minds and thoughts when we get up. And that we would also have the holiness that you call us to, to be our every aim every day. Help us to put these words given long ago through Bishop Ryle. May that be a starting point and a launching pad for us to think about how it is we can walk in faithfulness to Christ. But that we realize that we don't do this as a way of meriting help from you, but as an outworking of the salvation 
that you are working in us. So help us, God, to be your holy people. We ask that you would do this by your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen and amen. Uh, Friends, just to remind you, the offering box is over at the table. And again, if anybody would like this copy of Holiness by J.C. Ryle, um, I'd be glad to give that to you. If you would like another copy and want one ordered, I will be glad to order one uh, for you. Now, here's our closing benediction. Brothers and sisters, may the grace that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ and the love that was shown to us by God our Father and the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit who indwells us be with all of you as you go. Thank you.